You know, there are some topics in life that are so emotionally charged that it can be difficult for us to talk about them rationally. Uh, Ones that we just, we have such strong feelings about that it can be hard for us sometimes to really step back and, and talk about them without our emotions clouding our judgment. And that's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing. Uh, God gave us emotions. Uh, we, we should use them. But sometimes our emotions cloud the way that we talk about certain issues. Um, justifiable violence is one of those issues. Justifiable violence is one of those issues. How we talk about issues like violence, especially when it re- relates to self-defense. Uh, one of the questions that we sometimes ask ourselves as Jesus followers is when, if ever, is violence acceptable? For Jesus followers, when, if ever, is violence acceptable? Uh, humanly speaking, we can think of lots of examples where we can make a philosophical, fa- a philosophical case for when uh, violence may be acceptable, right? We think of things like self-defense. We say that if somebody is trying to harm us, I know a lot of people grew up being taught that you shouldn't ever be the aggressor, but if somebody tries to start a fight with you, then you can fight back. A lot of my friends grew up being taught that. You know, you should never start a fight, but if somebody else starts one, well, then you can defend yourself. And intellectually and philosophically, that makes sense. Uh, defending other people makes sense, right? That's why we, uh, as a nation, we have a police force and, and an army because we believe that defending ourselves and defending others uh, at, at some level is just and justified. And there's a whole string of theory behind just war theory and when violence is justifiable. Um, as Christians, though, we understand that our conduct is to be guided not necessarily by philosophical principles, though we can include those, but by primarily the teachings of Jesus. We look at the teachings of Jesus, and and as we've gone through this series, we've seen that sometimes Jesus' teachings don't make sense according to the way that we normally think about things. Sometimes Jesus' way of life, Jesus' teaching, flips what we think we know and sort of turns it upside down. Does anybody remember the what would Jesus do craze of the 1990s? And we remember that where there was all these, all of the bracelets that had WWJD or the, the t-shirts or the hats, all of these, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, and it, to, to be perfectly honest, I really think that the heart behind that was right, even if it ended up like so many other things being a little gimmicky, uh, ended up turning into being a little judgmental. I think it ended up being misused a little bit. You know, you'd point at somebody else and they would do something and be like, well, what would Jesus do? And it, so it, it became more judgmental and gimmicky than, than good. But I think the heart behind it was right. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's sort of the question that we've been asking through this entire series that we've called Follow Me. As we've been looking at the book of Luke, I've told you time and time again that to be a Christian really means to be a disciple of Jesus. There's a very specific definition about what it means to be a Christian, and that means to be a disciple of Jesus. And a disciple had a very specific definition in its day. To be a disciple was to become like one's master. And so this entire series that we've done since last fall called Follow Me has been about what it means to follow Jesus, to ask ourselves what would Jesus do in different situations so that we can become like him. Um, so we've been studying the life and teachings of Jesus with that goal in mind. And, and in this little mini-series that we're calling Tough Love, we're looking at Jesus as he faces personal adversity, as he faces suffering, as he faces betrayal and injustice. 
And so in today's uh, passage, we're going to look at Jesus as he's betrayed by a close friend, as he's arrested, sort of by, uh, as he's taken captive by a mob. Uh, And we're going to look at Jesus' response, and I think his response is going to give us a little bit of insight into uh, his opinion about defensive violence. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 22, verse 47. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. As usual, we'll project the the text uh, up here on the wall as well. So Luke chapter 22, verse 47, this is what it says. Uh, Luke tells us that while Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man uh, who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So we know that Judas was one of these followers of Jesus. He had been with him for several months, if not several years, depending on how we look at the chronology of Jesus' ministry. At least several months, if not three years. And, And this man who had been following Jesus, who had been close with Jesus this entire time, now has left Jesus and is now betraying him to those who want to have him arrested and crucified. And so I just want you to take a minute and, and, and ask yourself and just imagine how painful and how disappointing that would have been. Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you love? Have you ever, has somebody that, that you love ever just betrayed your confidence? Have they shared something that you shared with them in confidence with another friend? How badly did that hurt? Imagine somebody that you're so close with, somebody that you you care about so deeply, that you've invested in, somebody that you love, now betraying you to your enemies. Imagine how disappointing and painful that must have been. Uh, Moving on in the story, this is what Luke tells us. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? To which those of us who have been reading about Jesus' teaching and his example for any period of time would ask ourselves, why in the world would they think that? Right? As we've been studying, we've been, we've been studying Jesus' teachings for long enough to know that he has never once advocated his disciples using violence. He's never, in fact, he's sort of taught the opposite, hasn't he? He said, you should love your enemies. You should pray for those who persecute you. And yet Jesus' followers now are saying, Lord, should we strike with our swords? So, on one hand, we we sort of look at these disciples and we go, "Ah, come on, guys. How many times are you going to miss the point? Right? We're we're tempted to look at the disciples and and just sort of shake our head and say, oh, they they missed the point again. But one of the things that I've told you as we've gone through the series is that I believe one of the functions, one of the literary functions of the disciples in the Gospels is to help us see ourselves. Right? As we look at the disciples, we realize that there may be times that we miss the point when we uh, have been following Jesus for months or for years, and, and we still miss the point. So we'll, we'll take it a little easy on the disciples. We'll try to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Because what kind of Messiah were the Israelites, were the Jews expecting? They were expecting a military Messiah, right? A, a political Messiah who was going to come and was going to liberate 
uh, Jude, the Jews from Roman oppression, and he was going to do so by raising up an army. And so this is what they had been taught. They had, they'd been reading their Old Testament, and the way that they read it, they believed that the Messiah was going was to lead an army and overthrow. And so that it was just uh, in, unfathomable for them that their Messiah would be arrested, would be caught, would be crucified. Even though Jesus had told them, they had been so ingrained to believe in a certain way that it was hard for them to think in any other way. And so for them, it made perfect sense. If the Messiah is going to do what the Messiah is going to do, well, we can't let him be arrested. And in that sense, it sort of made, it made intellectual sense to take up their swords and fight back, right? We can, we can give them the benefit of the doubt. We can understand why they would have fought this way about swinging their swords. But in additionally, just to give them a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt, uh, we can back up and realize that just a few hours earlier, Jesus had actually told them to pick up swords, right? Uh, go back in your Bible to verse 36 of Luke 22. Verse 36 of Luke 22. This is what Luke tells us. This is just not more than a couple hours earlier. Jesus said to them, Luke tells us, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So just a couple hours earlier, Jesus had told his disciples, Well, you should buy a sword. Right? And so in their mind, you know, we can sort of understand why they would say, well, he told us to buy a sword, maybe now is when he wants us to use it. Right? We, can, we can sort of understand, at least if we put ourselves in their sandals, we can understand why this would have at least made a little bit of sense that Jesus told us to pick up a sword, well, now is the time to use it. Right? We can, we can give them the benefit of the doubt. But uh, if we think about this a little deeper, we should right away realize, this, this should cause us to ask some questions. When, when Jesus tells his disciples to pick up and buy a sword, that should cause us to ask a few questions. Because nothing else in Jesus' teaching ever related to violence. He never ever once previously told them to pick up swords. So it, it, at least as careful readers of Scripture, we should, we should sort of scratch our head and go, hmm, hmm. This is a little different. Jesus has talked about enemy love. He's talked about praying for enemies, blessing those who persecute you. All of these things. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is talking about picking up swords. What gives? What's the difference? What's going on? This should, as careful, close readers of Scripture, this should cause us to ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? And this is important. Because this passage here, uh, this verse here is one of the primary verses that people will often go to 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 say that Jesus sometimes justified violence. This is one of the verses that I used to go to to say, well, Jesus told his disciples to buy a sword, so he must not be completely against violence 100% of the time because he told his disciples to buy a sword. This was an argument that I used to make myself. Uh, but then somebody pointed out to me what I'm about to point out to you, and, and it started to make a lot more sense, and it made Jesus' teaching much more consistent all around. So here, here's, a, here's a key. When it comes to biblical interpretation, when it comes to how do I understand and apply a verse, one of the best things you can do is keep reading. Right? If, if, if a verse seems confusing, if a verse seems out of character, if, if something somebody says, one of the things you can do is keep reading. A lot of times the context itself will help us understand what's going on. It's a great key for biblical interpretation. Keep reading. Context is king. So here's what Jesus says right after this. He says, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. But he doesn't stop talking right there. He continues talking. This is what he says next. For... It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. 
Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. You see, Jesus gives the reason for picking up the swords right there in the very context. He doesn't say, buy a sword because I want you to use it to defend me when they come to arrest me. He doesn't say, buy a sword because I want you to defend yourselves when I'm gone. He says, pick up a sword because it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors and this must be fulfilled in me. You see, there was an Old Testament prophecy that said that the one who was going to be the Messiah would be numbered, would be counted among the transgressors. And so in order for uh, Jesus' accusations to stick, uh, in order for uh, him to be accused of leading a rebellion, which is what they tried to accuse him of, there had to be at least an appearance of truth to this claim, right? If, if they're going to accuse Jesus of being one who's trying to set up himself as king and sort of lead an insurrection, well, if none of his followers are carrying any weapons, it's really hard to lead an insurrection, to to lead a rebellion, if none of the people who are rebelling have any sort of tools to rebel with, right? If they're not carrying swords, they can't really fight back. And so they, they needed to have this appearance of being insurrectionists. And so Jesus is saying, I need you to carry swords, not because I want you to use them, but because it needs to be fulfilled in me, this Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah being numbered with the transgressors. So in order to fulfill this uh, prophecy, uh, he told them to buy a sword. Now again, if we, if we keep reading, we're going to understand that, that this is not a universal command for Jesus' followers to buy weapons. Okay, That's how this, this verse has been used in the past. This is not a universal command for Jesus' followers to go out and buy weapons for self-defense. I used to use it that way, and then as I continued to study, I realized that's not at all what's going on in this particular case. Uh, This is is why context is so important. Here's what Jesus says next. He says, uh, the disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus says, well, that's not going to be enough. You all need to get a sword. That's not what Jesus says, is it? No. Jesus says, that's enough. Right? That's enough. In other words, Jesus says, if you don't have a cloak, uh, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and go buy one uh, so that I can be numbered to the transgressors. The disciples say, oh, look, we've got two. Jesus says, oh, okay, that's enough. Right? Now, just thinking logically, we're all logical human beings here. We all have the capability to reason things out. Is two swords enough to lead a rebellion? No. No, thank you. No, two swords is not enough to lead a rebellion. Is two swords enough for self-defense against the, uh, the, the guard of the temple? If, if the temple guard is coming after a group of people, is two swords enough to defend yourself? No. Is two swords enough to defend yourself against the Roman army, against a Roman uh, a group of, of soldiers? Absolutely not. So in context here, we see that Jesus' instruction to his disciples to pick up swords was not about them fighting back. It was not about them providing for self-defense once he was gone. It was for a very specific theological purpose so that he would be numbered among the transgressions. This is what Jesus was telling his disciples. Two swords was enough for him to be numbered among the transgressions. If he had really wanted to resist, two swords never would have been enough. But the disciples, like the disciples often did, and like we often do too, right? Uh, misunderstood Jesus, and, and, that's led, uh, and that leads to the passage for today. So as we jump forward back to where we started, 
when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? So as we see, they misunderstood Jesus' teaching, just like so many of us have misunderstood Jesus' teaching about the purchase of swords, right? The disciples sort of reflect us in, in our own misunderstanding. He, he didn't tell them to buy swords to fight back. He didn't tell them to buy swords to defend themselves. He told them to buy swords so that he could be numbered among the transgressors. When they asked, is it time to use them? Here's how Jesus responded. Oh, sorry, one other verse. And one of them uh, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. In other words, this particular disciple didn't wait for an answer. So here's a good life principle, right? If you're going to ask a question, wait for the answer, right? They say, Jesus, is it time to buy swords? Yes, okay. And he starts swinging without, without waiting for an answer. Uh, it, it wasn't quite... Uh, uh, chop first, ask questions later, but it was more like ask a question, don't wait for an answer, and then start chopping. That's, that's sort of what happened here. This particular disciple didn't wait for Jesus to answer. He just started swinging. Now, Luke doesn't tell us who did this, but John tells us that it was Peter. John tells us that it was Peter who pulled out his sword and started swinging. Now, I love Peter. I do. I love Peter. And, and I love Peter because Peter was a man of action. Peter, he just, he didn't always think first, but he was willing to take action, right? He was the only one willing to get out of the boat. Uh, he, he, he often, he was impetuous, but he was a man of action. Um, and, and he made a lot of mistakes. Peter made a lot of mistakes, but he kept moving, and he learned from his mistakes, and he didn't let his mistakes keep him from continuing to learn. And here's the thing. If we never try, then we're never going to make mistakes, Right? If we never try, we're never going to make mistakes. But if we never make mistakes, we're never going to accomplish anything. So I'd rather be like Peter, who, who is a man of action and who takes steps uh, and, and makes mistakes and learns from them, than like somebody else who is so afraid of doing anything that they never take any step and they never accomplish anything because they're always so afraid of making a mistake. You know, part of me wonders if this isn't why Jesus chose Peter to leave the, lead the church when he was gone. Because I, I think that Jesus sort of understood that it's easier to, to redirect a body in motion than it is to overcome inertia. It's, if, so, if something's moving, just as a principle of physics, if something's moving, it's easier to redirect it than it is to overcome non-movement, to overcome inertia. And so I think, I think one of the reasons that Peter chose Jesus was because, Jesus was because Peter was a man of action. He was willing to take action. Um, so, that's beside the point. It's one of the reasons that I love Peter. And Peter's the one who swings here. And, and, and so I think one of the things to learn from this is, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. And it's, I, I think, really, it's, it's better to, to try. I think it's better to try and fail than to not try at all. And I, I think we see that over and over again in the life of Peter. That's just a side note. I won't charge you any extra for that. Um, so here, here's how Jesus responds to, to Peter after the swinging begins. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered, swing it again, Peter, but don't miss this time. Why are the rest of you standing around? Start fighting. Somebody toss me a sword. You guys are shaking your heads. Is that, is that not what your, that's not what your Bibles say? Oh, okay. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered, no more of this. No more of this. This should clear up once and for all that Jesus never intended his disciples to take up their swords and fight. When he told them to buy swords, it was never because he intended them to use it. It was for a very specific, symbolic purpose. Now here's a question. 
Did Jesus have the right to resist? Did Jesus have the, the right to defend himself? Of course he did, right? Of course he did. It, 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 one of our human rights inherent to us is the, is the right to defend ourselves. Jesus absolutely had the right to defend himself. That was within his rights. Did Jesus have the power? Did he have the power to resist and defend himself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's what, here's what Matthew tells us uh, happened here. Matthew gives us a little, little more insight. This is Matthew chapter 26. Uh, this is what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Pretty clear, isn't it? Do you think I cannot call my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, if I wanted to fight back, I've got 12 legions of angels I could call to my disposal to get myself out of the situation. He had the right and he had the power to resist and defend himself, but he didn't. And here's why. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Last week, we looked at Jesus' prayer in the garden, and we saw that although he prayed for a way to escape, although he prayed for a way out of the suffering, he ended his prayer with, yet not my will, but yours be done. That's because Jesus knew something that many of us need to learn, and, that's, and this is what it is. Jesus knew that sometimes the only way out is through. And sometimes to resist it is to miss it. Sometimes the only way out is through, and sometimes to resist it is to miss it. Again, this doesn't mean that we don't pray for healing. This doesn't mean that we don't pray for deliverance or pray for an escape. And it doesn't mean that we go looking for suffering. It doesn't mean that we go trying to start fights, trying to get people to hurt us, trying to make ourselves martyrs in the process. But it does mean that sometimes suffering is a part of the program. And it means that, that God can use sufferings for His purpose in our life. And if we're never willing to submit, if we're never willing to say, God, I, I, I don't want it to be this way, yet not my will, but yours be done. If we're not willing to submit, we might just miss what God has in store either for us or for someone else. I want you to think about something. What would have happened if Jesus had called down the angels and escaped? What would be the ramifications for us today? We probably wouldn't be here, would we? None of, we, you know, we certainly wouldn't be gathered here. We, we wouldn't have a, a cross behind us be gathered. In a, right? The, the, all of salvation could have been at stake if Jesus had chosen to resist and to fight back in this moment. He knew what was at stake in this particular case. There'd be no salvation to speak of. So for you, perhaps what you're going through is preparing you to be able to help someone else in the future. Perhaps what you're going through right now is God's way of preparing you to be able to bring 
deliverance and healing and escape to someone else in the future. Perhaps you're here now because somebody who had been through something else in the past and resists and and experienced it was able to walk with you through your time of suffering because they had been through it in the past. We just never know what God has in store. So again, this doesn't mean that we don't pray for a way out, but it does mean that when suffering comes, before we just resist at all costs, before we fight back at all costs, we say, God, is is there something that you need me to learn from this? Is there something that you have in store for me in this or for someone else? I know there are people in this room who, based on what you've been through in the past, you are uniquely positioned to help someone else who's either going through cancer, who's going through the loss of a loved one, a, a parent or a child, who's able to help somebody who's dealing with cancer. Because of what God has brought you through, you are uniquely positioned to be able to help somebody else. Sometimes, if we, if we resist so strongly, we can miss what God has in store for us. Again, that's just a side note. Back to Luke. So Jesus answered, no more of this. But he didn't stop there. He went on, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Just imagine that. Here Jesus was. He was being arrested unjustly. He had not done anything wrong. He was sinless. This man had come to arrest him and lead him away to what was going to be the most excruciating form of death known to humankind at the time. And instead of responding to hate with hate, instead of responding to fear with fear, instead of responding to violence with violence, he responded with love, with service, with a healing touch. That's tough love, right? That takes incredible strength of character. So here's the principle. Here's what I want us to remember. Here's the bottom line. Sell some clothes, buy a sword, and get ready to fight. No, you know better than that. Here's the bottom line. Our response is our choice. Our response to what happens to us is our choice. Just this week, a popular... uh, popular recording artist came out with a new song, uh, and the song was, Look What You Made Me Do. Look What You Made Me Do. Have you ever said that? Have you ever said, look what you made me do? Have you ever blamed your actions on someone else? Someone does something, you say, look what you made me do, right? Somebody does something to you, and your response, and instead of taking responsibility, you say, look what you made me do. No. I'll, 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 I'll tell this to her. No, Taylor Swift. <laughs> Nobody made you do anything. Our response is our choice. Our actions are our responsibility. Now let's make it personal. My response is my choice. When I'm mistreated by someone else, I am responsible for my actions. Say that with me. My response is my choice. Go ahead. That's right. My response is my choice. We can choose to respond to insult with insult. We can choose to respond to violence with violence. We can choose to respond to evil with evil or like Jesus. We can choose to respond to those things with love and compassion and service. 
Here's how Peter put it decades later. Remember, Peter was here. Peter was the one who drew his sword and cut off the ear. Here's Later on, Peter, probably reflecting back on this very moment, this is what he wrote. He said, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Finally, Peter writes, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with what? Blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We can choose to respond to violence with violence. That's what humans do. That's what humans have done throughout history is to respond to violence with violence. We can choose to respond to hatred with hatred. And you know what? We may even be justified in doing so. We can probably find some sort of justification for our hate for our anger, for our retaliation. Or we can be like Jesus and we can choose to be a blessing at home when it's your spouse or your children or your parents and they drive you nuts or they insult you or they say something to you that's hurtful. You can respond with something hurtful. Or you can choose to be a blessing and respond with love. Now I know what you're thinking, but Thomas, Thomas, you don't understand. But you, you, you don't know what he did. You don't know what she did. You don't know what they said to me. And I know. I get it. You know what? My wife is back there. You can ask her right now. I am not perfect at this. I have a lot of room to grow, okay? She will attest to that. I, have not, I don't have this down yet. sometimes I respond, not that she ever does anything that deserves it, but sometimes I respond in ways that I shouldn't respond. Okay, I've got a lot of room to grow. I know, but I know that it's possible. Let me give you a few modern examples. Here's one. The man in this slide, the African-American man, his name is Daryl Davis. He's a black jazz musician. He's spent decades traveling the country playing music, befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. He's, in his own story, he has uh, told us that he's befriended hundreds of these uh, Klan members, and as he befriends them, he ends up collecting their hoods because they realize that as they get to know him, they, they, they can't hold on to this, this version of hate. Now, now, nobody made him do this. Right? This was a choice that he made. And, and he, he probably would have been justified. Right? We would understand if he responded to this kind of hatred with hate. Right? We would understand if he had nothing but hate in his heart for members of the Ku Klux Klan. We would, we would forgive him for that. We would understand. We would say that he was justified. But instead, he took it upon himself to get to know them and befriend them. And over the decades, he's collected hundreds of hoods and led hundreds of men out of this white supremacist group. Because he decided not to respond to violence with violence, hate with hate, and evil with evil. 
I was in South Carolina a couple of years ago when Dylan Roof walked into an African-American church and shot nine African-Americans who were worshiping together there. And he tells us in his own words that he was looking to start a race war. Do you remember how they responded? The families of the victims? They would have been justified to want revenge, wouldn't they? They would have been justified to fight back, but instead they chose to forgive and to love. Many of you have probably heard the story of the Amish community where a man went into an Amish school and shot many of their children and ended up killing himself. We would understand if they would have developed hatred for that man and his family, wouldn't we? They would be justified in that hatred. They would be justified in perhaps seeking revenge or some sort of retribution. Instead, what they did was they extended an offer of grace and forgiveness to his family. They chose, like Jesus, not to respond to evil with evil or violence with violence, but to respond with love and blessing and forgiveness. Now, I want to make a little bit of a disclaimer here. Okay, this is the kind of thing that must be chosen and not forced. This is the kind of thing that must be chosen and not forced. And it's, I, we can't make someone respond to evil with kindness because that, that becomes abuse at that point. To, to, to force somebody to respond to, to abuse or violence in a way that shows love and compassion uh, without it being their choice would be abuse. So this has to be something that we, we have to wrestle with. You have to wrestle with this. I have to wrestle with this. But, but I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to ask yourself, how am I going to respond if I find myself the victim of hatred or evil or violence? Perhaps you would be justified to fight back. Perhaps you would be justified to respond with violence. But at the risk of sounding cliché, What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? If we're Christians, if we're disciples of Jesus, if our goal is to become like him, he responded to evil with love. He responded to violence with healing. He responded to hate with forgiveness. Friends, this is what changes the world. This is what changes the world. When we choose, when we choose by our own choice, because we can't force it, when we choose to respond to evil with love, we can change the world because it changes hearts. Our response is our choice. Our response is our choice. Lord, life's not fair. As we watch what happened to Jesus, who did nothing wrong, who came only to love and to serve and to heal and to liberate, we see that he was encountered with resistance and hate and violence. And life isn't fair. 
But God, you have given us the power to choose. So Father, we ask you, because you have told us that you have given us the Spirit of Christ, we ask you to empower us, to strengthen us, to give us the courage, God, to love like Jesus. God, we know it's easy to love when things are easy. We know it's easy to love people who are lovely, but God, we want you to help us love people who don't deserve it. We want, to, we want you to help us love those who mistreat us, love those who hurt us, whether it's in our own house with our spouse or our children or, or our parents. We want you to help us to love those who don't love us, who aren't lovely. Give us the courage, God. Give us the toughness to love like Jesus. Remind us, God, that our response is our choice. Remind us that you have empowered us. You have given us the spirit of Christ. So help us to follow in his footsteps, to love like he did. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.